When you work with Rabo AgriFinance, you get the global knowledge and financial strength of one of the world's largest and most innovative food and ag lenders, tools essential to realizing your ambitions. Discover how an unmatched network of local relationship managers and sector experts can help you confront agriculture's challenges and seize the opportunities that lie ahead. Learn more and contact us at www.raboag.com. Growing a better world together. Rabo AgriFinance. Welcome, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Niefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Bruce Vandesteeg from Greeley, Colorado. Bruce, how are things going? It's going really well. It's a gorgeous day. Nice day to live in Colorado. Yeah, although I think in about two days, it's going to be, what, 30 degrees colder and snow. So, uh, you know, but, but I think we all agree we need the snow. Yep. Winter's coming. It happens, but man, today is beautiful. Oh, I know. I know. I, I was just, uh, before we started taping this, I went outside and threw the Frisbee or the disc for my, uh, we have a, oh, about a five-year-old uh, lab that thinks she's a greyhound and uh, she wants to, you know, go 30 miles an hour chasing a little Frisbee. So, and then there's three other labs that try to chase her and they, they're, they're the more the English style and they can't catch up. So, but, yep. uh, well, enough about dogs and Colorado weather. Uh, we always like to start off with uh, background. So where, where were you born? Where did you go to college and, and how you got started in your career? So uh, born and raised in Chino, California, back when it was a big uh, dairy mecca, I guess you could call it. Yep. Um, went, decided I want to be a veterinarian at a young age and work with cows. Uh, so I went through high school and went to UC Davis. I did eight years at UC Davis, undergraduate, and I got my um, doctorate in veterinary medicine from Davis and graduated in 1992. Okay. And practice that year. And was that in California or where did you enter practice? It is. So I started in California in the north part of the Central Valley in a little town called Oakdale. Oh, yeah. I started in mixed practice, uh, mostly dairy, but did some small and some equine and quickly realized that I just wanted to be on farms. And so about two and a half years into practice life, I started my own practice and focused exclusively on uh, food animals. So dairy, beef, uh, and I did that for 15 years. Then it was uh, kind of time for transition. I was kind of getting a little bit, I guess, bored, if you will, <laughs> and uh, I thought about becoming a dairyman and, and I met a guy and we became partners and we built a dairy in Colorado. And so people asked me, well, why did you do that? And I go, it was just opportunity, right? It's just always been about opportunity, not like a ladder climber, just there's an opportunity. It sounds good. And we take it. So I sold my practice and everything I owned in California and moved to uh, outside of Greeley, Colorado. We built a dairy from the ground up and I ran that for five years. And then uh, that partnership's time needed to end. So I sold out and I transitioned to corporate America, which I never thought I was going to go do. And I became a technical services veterinarian. And um, about a year and a half into that, they tapped me and said, hey, we want you to become a sales manager. I went, well, I've never done that before. Another opportunity popped up. And so I, I got into management and I managed the dairy and beef business for that company uh, from Texas to Washington. 
that's that that's true? a little bit of that's a little bit of uh, uh, geography there. It's a it's a little geography. It's quite a large chunk of geography. So, um, but it was just a dairy and beef side, which helps. But boy, I got to see a lot of beautiful country and meet a lot of neat people. Um, and you're focusing on, you know, the deer and beef side. So those are all in pockets, right? You kind of handle, yeah. you know, the panhandle of Texas was my deal. Southwest Kansas, Northeast Colorado, you know, kind of the corner of Utah, the twin, you know, was it magic Valley and treasure Valley yeah. of Idaho yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of deal. So, um, and then I decided that travel was too much. They wanted, you know, about four to five days a week of travel and, I still had kids at home and, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back and pick up my consulting business again. And um, so I did. So I transitioned out, went to consulting and then I wanted to keep investing. And so I made the random, not necessarily random, but I, I mostly like a wide, but I, I got in the car wash business and um, <laughs> partly because uh, I needed some place for my kids to work and I wanted some place for my money to keep um, growing so, and I thought, well, there's pumps and vacuum and other things, not unlike a dairy barn. And so we got in the car wash business and um, I bought one that needed some extra work and expansion and that leveraged that into another one that needed to be fixed. So I kind of ended up in that fix and repair car wash deal. I did that for about five years and then like one day my wife looked at me and goes, why are we still doing this? And I said, well, maybe the kids want it. She's so we asked the kids and the kids like, we don't want anything to do with it. And went, <laughs> that sounds pretty normal. Yeah. Yep. We sold them. It was, and I, I remember the first Christmas after they were sold, and I was sitting in my living room and, and I looked, I go, something's really weird. And I also realized it's the first time in 30 years I hadn't been on call for something, <laughs> and um, which is really quite nice. I didn't yeah. mind if it snowed because if it snowed, I didn't have to clear it. I didn't have to go out in it. And, um, and so I just kept uh, consulting piece up and I joined, a, I was one of the three founding members of a tech startup in the dairy software world and did that for about three years and decided that I really wasn't into sales and became a full-time consultant. And, and um, like, I think one of the questions you had in your list was like, you know, what are your hobbies? And like, well, I, it's really a business, but it's kind of a hobby. And I, I flip homes on the side as well. So that's, that's kind of the, that's, that's the, that's the career story right there. <laughs> so let's, let's go back to the dairy. So that was a dairy in Northeastern Colorado. Was that uh, Holstein, Jersey, Guernsey, conventional, organic, just expand a little bit more on just what type of dairy that was. So it, we were all Holstein. Uh, we shipped milk to Safeway. <clears throat> and um, we milked right around 3,500 cows, and it was a um, conventional farm. So, okay. and that Safeway is that the plant down here in Denver? Yep. Okay. Okay. Right off of I 70. Mm -hmm. So, yep. So it's kind of cool to be able to tell your employees is like, you know, everybody needs to have a why. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? And, and we're sitting down with them all one day, and, and I asked them where they bought their milk, and, you know, it was either Safeway or King Supers. And I says, well, gentlemen, ladies, you're drinking what you make and they looked at me and they didn't, they didn't get that concept. And so then also they started realizing that, Oh, we're making food for our, for our local, you know, yep. community. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, I think it, uh, it motivated them, gave them more sense of purpose for, for what we're doing. It was, it became real. 
you know. Of course, you know, if it goes through, you know, Safeway Albertson's going to come under the umbrella of Kroger, which King Supers is part of Kroger. So it'll, you know, whether you go to King Supers or Safeway, it's probably going to be the same milk. Yep. Yeah. And then, uh, so I'm, I'm just curious on, on the dairy software uh, business, uh, was that um, dealing with breeding or management or accounting or what, what type of software was that? So our, our goal was to create an enterprise resource program because uh, there was nothing that was all inclusive in the dairy, in the dairy world. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we started by building the backbone first so that all the apps could plug into something and all the data could be shared. Uh, so that's the first piece we did. And then uh, we built some feeding software designed to feed cows. So from feed trucks, you know, and, and loaders, and it was all using new, new technology. So everything was on your phone. Yep. Yep. Very little hardware. Um, you had to have Wi-Fi. It was very nimble, very easy to use. Uh, since there's a lot of multi-language people, you know, from Portuguese to Spanish to Kai, um, you know, the Guatemalans and, and people picked up quickly. And then we went into uh, developing the animal side, which was for breeding records and milk records and basically anything to do with the records on a cow. And then we developed training software so you could uh, track and provide training for employees. And um, then we were starting to get into about the time I left uh, facility maintenance type stuff. So how are your pumps working? You know, are things, you know, little sensors on different things. So you could tell things are going to fail, how they're doing from chemicals to the wash system to pumps and gates and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm sort of curious. And again, I, I I'm going a little bit off script here, but I'm always, mm -hmm. I'm a curious guy. Um, in the dairy, you know, as far as milking, you have some of these robots out here, and I saw some of those mm -hmm. in New York State a few years back. Is that still a trend, or is it really going back to more conventional? Or, or you're a dairy person. Uh, fill me in and fill the listeners in a little bit as to um, how cows are being milked these days. So most of the barns are still conventional barns uh, because they've been built and they've got a lifespan of 20 to 30, 40 years um, but the trend is to go to robots, either individual robots or the trend is to make, or to put in a conventional barn, but you're putting robots in that do a lot of the routine work, which is cleaning cows, spraying disinfectant on the cow's teats when they go around and then somebody just hangs the machine. So it's becoming more and more automated as, uh, you know, the labor is tight, um, and, finding consistent labor is difficult yep. and you know the machines just work all the time and, and some of the, the activities are so monotonous and so repetitive that um, it lends itself well to the robot so the robot piece is, is really growing it's but it's still not the majority of the farms i remember watching a cow a cow went into the little individual robot to be milk and something happened where suddenly you know the cow's falling down on the ground she gets up she kicks the machine but then she's finally got herself milk so it was it mm -hmm. was sort of you're curious to watch how it works but uh, you're, you're right i mean labor these days um is is difficult and i don't think it's going to get any easier no you know we're in that trend of uh you know the largest generations are you know retiring millennials is, is a large population but gen z is less and we don't have a good immigration policy 
it's just going to be tight. Yeah. It's just is what it is. And the economy is growing in other sectors. So uh, it's just kind of a reality of life that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Now, you're, what you're doing now is you are consulting. So let's expand mm -hmm. on what type of consulting, how you consult for like farmers, farmers in the industry and so on. So let's expand on that. Okay. So uh, my consulting practice is based around uh, what I would call organizational health. So uh, it's anything to do with how do we have a healthy, profitable business. So I, I get into quite a bit of leadership stuff. I help people. The, the common request is, um, I feel like I've hit a ceiling and I don't know how to get past it. Or my phone rings all the time. I'm busy. I want to grow. And I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed. And how do I handle the, the chaos? Because I love business, but I, I just don't know where to go. And so it, it involves around a lot of process type stuff, uh, organization charts, uh, understanding the what roles we have in a business and then what people should fill fill those roles the whole Jim Collins piece of you know you gotta get the right people in the right seat so we talk a lot about having the right people and um, and so it's, it's kind of it ends up being a typical a bit of a reorganization to kind of get the business back on the track they want to go so I so I typically start with the question of what does winning look like, you know, for the owners or for the management team. And that's a holistic question, not just say financially, but, you know, where do they want to go with the company? What's their why? What's, uh, how does this fit in with their work and their, in their life? And kind of, so it's a very holistic approach to how do we have, uh, create a really great vibrant business that is good for them and good for the employees so that the whole thing works very holistically and I, I i know looking at your um i'm going to call cv or resume and so on that you were involved one of the consulting engagements you had was with a dairy in california that was losing money can you share how you were able to turn that around or what was some of the key things that that worked for that situation yeah so uh that dairy had fallen into uh some lack of good management the owner was had multiple businesses and um, so they ended up with a lot of employee turnover they had uh, quite a bit of death loss going on cows and calves uh, they just had processes that weren't working so in that that particular situation I stepped in and, and actually ran the dairy one of the owner's kids wanted to learn how to become a dairyman so they basically I tutored them and so like i kind of started off doing most everything and then, and then slowly just phased myself out over about a six month period and it was we just recreated all the systems you know got got our arms around who the staff was why we had turnover what was going on with the cows as far as you know we had some feeding issues we had some health issues and um you start just looking what what are the different problems and what you think the underlying root cause is and we just went after those things so we went from i don't know turnovers over about 200 percent and got down to about 30 percent by the time i um you know that they were ready to take the thing over mm -hmm. uh, and then just a lot of processes you know who does what when schedules uh, so that things just weren't missed you know that the the money's in the details and we had to get the, the basics down 
and then we had to start working on the details. And so they, they learned how to have meetings, how to communicate, how to interview, how to hire well, how to train and onboard people, how to retain people. Because a lot of it was around that people retention, quality people side. Mm-hmm. Because I could tell every client that there's not a problem with a cow that doesn't have not have a human attached. So we got to fix the human side and the cow problems go away. And, um, and that's what happened. They were losing about 500 grand a month and we turned that into a positive cash flow situation in six months. Now, so I'm, I'm going to key in a little bit on the, on the death loss side. Um, like mm-hmm. you say, that's a people, I mean, granted the cow is the one suffering, dying and, and the calf and so on. But is that because people just don't have ownership or what, what was the key reason why you were having <clears throat> large death loss and, and how do you turn that around just, just for the listeners? So on this particular place, it was, there was a disconnect between management and labor and um, labor didn't feel like they had a, um, uh, a role mm-hmm. in um, how things are done. There's no autonomy, there's no training. And so if, if you don't, they were just a, they were just a tool. And when people realize that you really don't care about them, that you're just there to use them, they cease to care, right? They don't have any equity in the deal. And that was a lot of what was going on. They are just putting time in, right? And sometimes you'd find them doing nothing or hiding or or whatever, or just doing sloppy work. And so we had to change management's um, perspective and get the right people leading, right? Leadership, in my opinion, is where everything rises and falls, you know, and with good leadership, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships. And that's really what changed this place is we changed the leadership so that people would, would follow the leaders and, um, and they did. And so once they started caring, because they knew that the leaders cared about them as people, then they, uh, they really started to turn around. I'm just goes away. Yeah, I'm just curious a little bit. Uh, again, I'm going to veer off a little bit. You had mentioned that you currently or were flipping homes. Are you still doing that? And and is there a particular type of home you look for? I know this is not quite ag related, but I'm just sort of curious. Uh, yep. Is it primarily in that Greeley area or do you go outside of that area? I'm, I'm just curious on that. So would you go outside the area? We do. I've been active in Oklahoma, but that area, I'm, I'm, I didn't really want to travel much, so I've been flipping homes in Oklahoma for about a year now. So actively, we're we typically in the northern Colorado area, Longmont to Fort Collins. And, and when you say that, we are going to uh, finish a home today. So I'm done with this podcast. I'm going to go over to a house and wrap it up, and it'll get pictured today and go on the market on Friday. Okay. <laughs> So what what would be the typical home you're looking at uh, rehabilitating and and flipping? We try to get into what's changed. Um, We want single family homes, typically something that we can do something to. So we we typically buy houses that are in um, disarray or that people have not taken very much good care of and then go in and basically take kitchens out, bathrooms out. We may move walls. The house that we're doing now was a 1913 craftsman home. Mm-hmm. So we um, completely redid the 
the uh, basement. Like the basement had the old boiler and oh, yeah. coal door in, yeah. and we took all those systems out. So we modernized an old home, so you can live in a old looking home, right, with all the old classic wood uh, trim and wood floors, but with modern furnaces and air conditioning and electric and kitchen and and you know bathrooms and uh so something that's uh we buy them you know below market because they're in a state of disrepair and then we try to turn them into homes that people can really enjoy and uh enjoy living in are are you noticing any drop off due to the increase in interest rates i, I mean i think it's oh, yeah. being offset with a lack of demand i mean excuse me a lack of supply there's still demand but there's no supply so what what are you seeing as far as the interest rate increase so the the buyer pool has shrunk dramatically um certain areas the prices have fallen um not i wouldn't say like, like huge but enough that if you buy a house and you know like we bought this house in august sell it in november that the price will fall in that two to three month period. So you got to kind of work that into your budget. Um, you know, you have to have a seller to have a buyer because most of the homes are owned by somebody. They're not mm. brand new homes, you know, being built as much as there used to be. So um, it's, it's a, it's just a tighter market and it's become a buyer's market instead of a seller's market, uh, which, you know, that always kind of bounces around. Yep. Um, but the interest rate have really, you know, it's, it's raise our cost of money right to to fund the rehab part mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's changed the ability of the buyer to buy so we used to be in the entry-level home which is i've really loved being in that space and i've had to get out of that space because the entry-level buyer is struggling to be able to make a yeah. homework and right, so we're in that more mid-level to high level um home because those people have enough down payment uh, and can swing uh, a mortgage. So we we shifted our price range. So we're, we're actually remodeling more expensive homes than we used to, um, just so that we can stay where there's a buyer pool. Yep, very interesting. I uh, like I say this is the top producer podcast, but it's still interesting to see what uh, people are doing besides just maybe the farming side. So let's go ahead and take, we'll take a break for a sponsor message and we'll come back and have a little bit of a discussion and entrepreneurship. So we'll, we'll take a quick break. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years, 10 years, Top producers like Hans Reinchi of Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, RoboAgri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgri Finance.
Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. This is uh, Paul for your host, uh, and we're going to uh, rejoin our conversation with Bruce Vandesteeg from Greeley, Colorado. So, um, Bruce, you're certainly, I would call you a serial entrepreneur, and even myself, you know, I've been involved in various businesses besides just being a CPA, and now I guess I have farms in Washington, Idaho, and or not mm-hmm. Idaho, Washington, Iowa, and Missouri. So what, what, and I view most farmers as being an entrepreneur. I'm just curious what's your thoughts on on farmers sort of being or what causes a farmer to be an entrepreneur? So, you know, the, most of the ones I've worked with, um, there's a love of business. And as your business grows, you start to look at what are the upper, you know, what are the other opportunities? Because you don't, you don't want to just sit and, you know, this, this odd as it sounds, you don't want to just sit and make money, right? Money is important, but it's not all about money. Money, and I think, is just the chip on the game board. Mm-hmm. It's how mm-hmm. you move it around and what you what you do with it. And so, as they're looking at their business as it grows, they're like, "Well, do I vertically integrate or do I horizontally expand?" And they're just looking for those pieces that will make their business uh, either more profitable or give them a stronger position. And they've got creative minds. And so their minds are never, never stop thinking and they're pondering and go, what, what's the next thing? Cause they're not, uh, they're not complacent. Right? We have that conversation between what's complacent and content. I think a lot of them are content, but they're not complacent. And contentment doesn't mean that you're just going to sit and do nothing. It means, Hey, I enjoy what I'm doing, but I've got this brain, right? God created me to think and to live and I want to go and expand. And so they've just got this intuitive or natural desire to see things grow, right? They're farmers, they want to see things grow. And so it's not just plants or cows, it's their business. And um, then that just naturally lends to being an entrepreneur. And frankly, if you're not really kind of a little entrepreneurial, you might not last. Yeah. So now... Uh- what I've seen in my career of working with entrepreneurs is sometimes as they expand, you know, there comes to that point where let's say sometimes they're not process orientated, you know, mm-hmm. de- not detail orientated. So that can create some issues later on. Is that a lot of times when you step in as a consultant to help them bridge that sort of that gap from being an entrepreneur to being more of a, I guess a business that can operate maybe without them, you know, law entrepreneurs are great for starting it, but sometimes as far as running it, they run into some issues. I'm, I'm just curious how you help in that process. That's a, that's a big spot because typically you grow things, you kind of grow it on your back, right? And you, and you, you push forward and you work hard and you grow it and you grow it. And there comes a point in time where you have to shift from, I can handle all this and it's a very flat organization chart to also I have to have people helping me, you know? And so like, I'm pretty sure you mentioned you got farms, a couple different States that you can't farm on all those States. Like you have to have somebody doing the work and overseeing the day to day. And so they do get that spot where it's like also it becomes more than they can handle. And so things tend to start slipping and they start to notice, uh, there's some slippage or it's not quite what like they want it to be, or they're just stressed. Um, 
they can't they don't have any free time or there's just and that's the and kind of when they get to that point because um, there needs to be a, enough pain typically before they'll call a guy like me yeah right? if there's enough pain they're not going to call um you know the beauty is, is once there's enough pain they call right like i get to do what i love doing but it's it's you get to really see things transform right their life transforms uh their employees transform and they kind of just and, and they like I say that that glass ceiling goes away and they've got a whole new space to kind of move into and um it really allows them to go uh, enjoy their business again and and kind of get back in that entrepreneurial position because they figure out where what their role is and where they fit and then what the roles need to be underneath them to keep the whole thing rolling so if there was a listener out there that says hey i'm in that period of pain and i need help from somebody like bruce how would they be able to contact you uh phone or email right so i don't do you post that stuff or do i say it? Just, just say it on the air you know we typically don't post yep. it but you can just say it on the air yeah so the phone number is 970-397-4902 and the email is bvandesteeg at gmail.com okay okay perfect perfect well i always like to end our conversations with three or four key questions i like to ask so mm -hmm. first is uh who was your mentor maybe in the vet side or the dairy side or the consulting side so uh vet side were several one of the main ones and he started being my mentor when i was 16 and we're still friends today as walt gooderbach has taught me a tremendous amount and uh, it's funny you think about that when you're young, you're like, oh, I did this on my own. And now I look back, I go, man, I walked on the backs of not, you know, not walked on, but I was carried on the backs of so many people. Um, my dad taught me a ton about work and life and ethics and construction. And I, he's been retired now, but I still call him today and go, dad, how do you work on like, you know, I don't know how to stucco, man. How does that happen? <laughs> um, and then uh, I met a realtor transformed uh my thoughts about um investing a guy named kevin cook and uh we've been friends now for oh 12 or 15 years so those are probably three of the, the big key ones and, and then i got a group of guys i meet with every friday and we just do life together and um and just share what's going on and how do we get better from business to family to to life so yeah yeah. Definitely a lot of people in my life. Well, good, good. And then uh, you sort of mentioned a little bit that your hobby is maybe being an entrepreneur, but do you have other hobbies that, that you and your family do? So I well, I, I love to read, and, and most of my reading is just pleasure stuff, although I tend to have three or four books open at a time, so some of them are about leadership and whatnot. Um, I have a shop at my, uh, at my house, and I... I like to buy power tools and sometimes I use them a lot. Sometimes I think I just buy them because I like them. Uh, and, then, and then I hike. It's like my daughter and I hiked half dome this summer uh, together. So those are probably the, the three big ones, but, but I do enjoy working. I find working is life giving. Yeah. Half dome. That's the one in Yosemite. Yep. Okay. Okay. It's, it's quite a deal because she was five months pregnant. So Ooh. it was bigger, a bigger deal for her than it was for me. So. <laughs> and, and you probably had a hard time keeping up with her. So, well, actually, she, yeah, well, the other way around. Other way around. <laughs> and then uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? 
That's a great question. Um, one is I sleep like a rock. So technically, no, nothing keeps me up at night. I fall asleep. But what? But things that concern me or, um, you know, I watch what's going on with the economy and I'm, I'm not worried about it. But as I look at my business and go <clears throat> to go to the house flipping side, how do you, you can't guess anymore where things are going with the Fed changing things or with the wars going on and it, it makes it volatile. And so it's hard to buy something today and have a good estimate of what your costs are going to be, you know, and, and <clears throat> what you might be able to sell it for. So it's, 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 there's a bit of risk involved in that business now. Um, so that, and I think the other part is just myself trying to be a good businessman. There's times I get uh, busy, just like all the other businessmen. I sit at my desk and every now and then I look at myself and I go, what would you tell your clients? Cause I don't think you're paying attention to your own advice. Yeah. That, that, that keeps me up at night. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh do as I say, not as I do sometimes <laughs> or vice versa. So uh, yep, I get but, lost in it just like they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I find myself, I I'm, I'm a good doer. I like to do things, you know, um, I, I think my wife accuses me of being ADHD. Um, so I like to do that, but like you say, you got to step back and say, Hey, yeah, I need to be planning more and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Of course, I am semi-retired, but uh, uh, that just means I'm working 2,000 hours instead of three. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and then finally, what's your definition of success in farming? You know, I ask my clients this question all the time when I start with, I go, what does winning look like for you? And so, and I think that for me, that, that winning looks like I'm enjoying what I'm doing, uh, my kids are successful uh, in life, not just financially. Uh, they have a great relationship with my wife, um, healthy relationships with my friends. And um, I think I, that that holistic piece just, that's successful farming because then it's, you're producing good crops, you got a good business, but you haven't left all the other parts of life behind. It's all coming along. I think we can, I think, I think we can do a lots of things well and, and we should. Yeah, yeah, no, totally agree. So, in uh, speaking of that, I'm I'm getting ready to go to Colorado Springs to the Great Wolf Lodge with four grandkids, my four sons, mm -hmm. couple daughter-in-laws, my wife, and I'm not sure if I'm going to survive, but I will. So, <laughs> it's not like a great time. It Enjoy. will be. It will be. Yeah. It'll be hectic, but it'll be fun. So, mm -hmm. again, Bruce, thanks a lot for taking time out of your day. It sounds like you. You have one of your entrepreneur things you have to take care of after this call, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Again, this is the Top Producer Podcast, and this is Paul Neifert, your host, signing off. When you work with Rabo AgriFinance, you get the global knowledge and financial strength of one of the world's largest and most innovative food and ag lenders, tools essential to realizing your ambitions. Discover how an unmatched network of local relationship managers and sector experts can help you confront agriculture's challenges and seize the opportunities that lie ahead. Learn more and contact us at www.raboag.com. Growing a better world together. Rabo AgriFinance.